Recovery Elevator, episode 374. I want them to see that, yeah, I'm, I did fail, but I made a comeback and you can too. And it's okay to have these setbacks because they slingshot you forward. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's podcast, we have Megan. She's 37 years old from Georgia and took her last drink on April 21st, 2019. Yo, I forgot to mention this in last week's episode. I want to give a shout out to our ukulele Battle of the Band winners and say great job to everyone who signed up for the course. Whether you won the Battle of the Bands or you made two sessions and your ukulele is currently serving as a paperweight, tell yourself nice job for stepping outside your comfort zone and trying something new. So here are our winners. We've got the most catchy tune going to the Free Birds, best performance to A Simple Band, most creative performance to The Puddle Jumpers, best visual presentation goes to Uke Can Do This, and best overall group, The Sunshine Girls. Listeners, I had no idea what to expect when creating this course. I thought it would be me and maybe 10 to 15 sober rock stars. I was not expecting over 100 participants, but my AF journey connected me with two sober ukulele instructors at just the right time, and we leveraged technology to make it work. We had 11 alcohol-free ukulele bands who performed in the final battle of the bands in week eight. Most of them didn't know how to tune a ukulele eight weeks ago, and now they are playing somewhere over the rainbow or writing their own songs. One reason why the ukulele can be such a powerful sobriety tool, or really any musical instrument, is because you can literally write a new story for yourself. You've heard a lot of times on this podcast that we have to step away or let go of our old story. With ukulele, all you need to know is a couple of chords and strumming patterns. So thank you everyone for this special moment. We'll for sure do this course again in the future and possibly an AF201 ukulele course, I will let you know. Now before we get any further today, let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature's all-natural CBD-based products are specially formulated to help you lighten the load in recovery. I've been taking Exact Nature's sleepy CBD pills and sleeping so well. These products are 100% THC-free, and they can be a great tool for your recovery. Learn more at exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Listeners, this podcast has many purposes, and a big one of those is to help you feel less alone. Here's something I heard the other day in one of our chats. This person said, We have four bars, three liquor stores, and no stoplights in my town. This was referring to why it's so hard to quit drinking in their small town. Now, I'm sharing this with you for two reasons. Number one, yes, in many places, unfortunately, this is the case. But listeners, this is for real. It's changing, and it's changing fast. As a society, we are starting to lift our heads out of the sand. It seems like every week I get a new email about a new alcohol-free establishment opening up across the country in smaller and smaller towns. I think this is absolutely fantastic. So number two, and why I'm sharing this with you, is if in your town, city, county, state, or country, if it feels like this, 
then there are others out there who feel the same. And if there are other people out there who feel the same, then by definition, you're not alone. Okay, let's get started. I want to share with you today an email I received from a listener named Don O. He says, Paul, I'm listening to all the podcast episodes again. Remind everyone when they have listened to them all, start over. It really helps. Some of them I had forgotten, but listening to them again is the best. Have a great weekend, Don O. Don, thank you for the email and thank you for listening. It is flattering to hear that people have listened to all 374 episodes of this podcast. And some of you have listened to the episodes more than once. Again, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. We are so honored to be part of your alcohol-free journey. And speaking of time, I think that's the number one asset or gift we can give to the world is our time, our presence, our attention. So thank you. So our episodes average about 52 minutes each. So if you've listened to each episode, that's about 360 hours or close to 14 days of listening. I remember when I first started my AF journey, I listened to a few sober podcasts while drinking, which is fine. That's where I was starting, but mostly I was sober when listening on this journey, especially in the beginning, the one day at a time slogan is often reduced to one hour at a time, perhaps one minute at a time. So we are honored to be here with you as you log seconds, minutes, and hours away from alcohol. Again, a big point of this podcast is to make you feel less alone. Myself, Odette, Chris, and Ty, and the whole RE team, we are with you in every podcast. Okay, I wanted to mention Don's email for a couple reasons. First off, Don, thanks for the plug. Again, I'm flattered and had no idea people would go from binging whiskey sodas to binging this podcast. I think that's rad. But the main reason I wanted to mention this today is because it applies to much more than this podcast, and here's why. You are not static. You never stay the same. Biologically, you are changing as you listen right now. In fact, every seven years, the body has a full new set of cells. If you do go back and listen to previous episodes of this podcast, you are a different person than the one who listened the first time. You'll hear and see things in a new light. A new value bomb will emerge that you didn't hear the first time. The same goes with your favorite recovery book or even AA meetings. If you went to an AA meeting a couple years back and it didn't land with you, please don't write it off forever. Go back again because you're a new person and you're at a different point in your alcohol-free journey. An addiction has the propensity to crack us open. We fight, we dig our heels in, but eventually the addiction wins. And no, 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 not wins, as in we are destined to a life of drinking, but the addiction wins or succeeds in cracking us open. This is a good thing. When we are cracked open, we get to know ourselves. Most importantly, we connect with ourselves. And side note here, listeners, we cannot fight an addiction. We can't go to battle with an addiction. We need to use that energy to help us connect with ourselves first. Again, it cracks us open over and over again. So for that reason alone, if you did go back and do a 14-day RE marathon, you're more open now than the first time that you listened. And here's why this is important. You are more willing to receive the advice than the old person, than the old you. The guard or the ego has been softened or let down more. You recognize your ideas aren't the best and you're more inclined to take the advice of others who have walked this path before you. This is the same with all recovery podcasts. 
If you track with another sobriety podcast, go back and listen to those past episodes or reread your favorite recovery book again. It's all the same, really. You're a different person with a new set of skills, life experiences, and tools than the person who listened the first time. That's the point that I'm trying to drive home today. For me personally, my first one to two years AF, I wasn't too receptive or open to the HP or the higher power, the spirituality thing. Yes, and I said thing, that would be T-H-A-N-G. So when I go back and reread a recovery book or sections of the big book from those early days, I recognize how much I missed or I wasn't ready to receive that information at that moment. No problem at all. It's just I wasn't quite ready for it. And occasionally I go back and listen to interviews from the early days of this podcast and same thing. I pull a completely different set of lessons out of it. So Don, thank you so much for listening and thank you for the email today. Uh, another thing I want to pull from this, you know, life today, it's so much about more, more and more consuming more information or uncovering the new hidden gem in a different type of book. Totally fine. And I'm not knocking that, but sometimes less is more. In fact, I heard a great quote from a mentor of mine, he said, you know what, Paul, less isn't more, less is way more. And, you know, we can hear hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes, YouTube videos and, and books. But if we track with something, it's not a bad idea to go back and listen to it over and over and over. This has been me with a, with a new earth from Eckhart Tolle. I make it a point to listen to that book a couple of times a year. And every time I listen to it, as I mentioned, I'm a new person. I hear something that I completely missed or I wasn't quite ready to receive that information at that time. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode today. And before we hear from Chris and Megan, let's hear from a better way to get help. Let's hear from BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters, and as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy, so I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash elevator. Thank you, Paul, for the introduction and Recovery Elevator. Please help me welcome welcome Megan. Megan, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's like springtime in North Dakota, so all is good. It's awesome. Can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? Yeah, the last time I drank was April 21st, 2019, so almost three years. Three years, you're coming up close. Um, Yeah. It should be just a couple days after this airs. How are you feeling? 
I feel fantastic. I mean, honestly, deciding to live an alcohol-free life has been the best decision I've ever made for my mental health. My only regret is that I wish I had done it sooner. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a shared feeling for a lot of us. But uh, coming up on three years, that's amazing. Fantastic job. I'm really proud of you. Thank you so much. And you had a lot to do with that, Chris. So I, I'm, this is my first time meeting you, but I've known you through our online groups for three years and you were such a huge part of that. You were like a big brother to me. So thank you. I really appreciate that. All right. I can't take affirmations, so we got to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, thank you. Um, it's really, it's cool to be able to, to be a part of someone else's journey. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of this, can you let listeners know a little bit about yourself where you're from, what you do for a living, family, things like that. And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, absolutely. So I am 37 years old. I live in Georgia. I grew up kind of all over. My dad um, was a doctor for the Air Force, so we moved around a lot. So I was actually born in Minnesota um, and moved um, about seven times before the age of 10. Um, I am a family nurse practitioner. I specialize in internal medicine and geriatrics. Um, Before I was that, I was actually a labor and delivery nurse for 10 years. Um, I'm the youngest of five children. I have um, a husband. We've been married almost 14 years. can't believe it's been that long. We have three children. We have a 12-year-old little girl and six-year-old boy-girl twins that keep us very busy. And for fun, let's see, for fun, I love to run. I've been running competitively since I was about five years old. I also love to snowboard, anything to do with winter sports. And I like to write, actually. When I was little, I used to write poetry. um, And I'm just now, like, getting back into that. Oh, that's cool to be able to, like, reconnect with, yeah, to reconnect with something that that was a passion from a younger age. Yes, absolutely. And I gotta say that, like, the irony can't be lost that you like winter sports yeah in georgia yeah i know well you know well, minnesota funny. native so true but i only was in minnesota for six months but in georgia i actually lived on the only ski resort in georgia it's closed down now but um my dad used to take us out west so i actually grew up skiing at three years old and then at 15 my brother was snowboarding and i was like that looks way more fun so i got into snowboarding at 15 and i absolutely love it there's something about strapping a board to your feet and tackling a mountain there's just no other thrill like it <laughs> that's awesome very cool well thank you and yeah, let's, let's dig into this and let's do what we came here to do. Um, sure. Why don't you tell us uh, about your relationship with alcohol? Let's maybe, let's start from the beginning and, and see where we end up. Okay, that sounds good. So for the most part, I had a really happy childhood. Like I said, my dad was a doctor. My mom had a really cool job as a photographer. She owned her own business. I'm the youngest of five children. I grew up in a very loving home. You know, having to move around, I think kind of, created this like extrovert in me. So I have always been a very happy, friendly kid. When I was about seven, my dad got a job working as a doctor for the government. And that actually required us to move overseas. So we moved to Mexico City, Mexico, and we lived there for three years. And while this was a super happy time in my life, I mean, I love the culture. I love the people. I became fluent in Spanish. Um, This is where like the cracks in my family started. So my parents, unfortunately, went through a tumultuous divorce. It was heartbreaking for me. I loved both of them so much. But because of that divorce, we had to move, me and my mom and the kids, to our summer home. We had a summer home in rural Georgia, in the northeast corner of of Georgia. So um, here I am, 10 years old, very formative age. And when everything is out of control in your life, you control what you can. 
And that was eating for me. So I developed a very disordered eating pattern. I became anorexic. I became eventually bulimic. And then that kind of disordered eating happened, you know, through my 20s. And I remember um, one of my first episodes I listened to of Recovery Elevator was Odette's story and about her kind of relationship with disordered eating and how that can correlate with alcohol use disorder. And I saw a lot of parallels in my story and hers. But anyway, so now I'm, I'm 10 years old. I moved to this very country town, um, which I grew to love very much. I mean, there's salt of the earth people there, but I think they didn't really know what to do with me. I was this little blonde who was like fluent in Spanish. And, you know, I remember at show and tell, I did this like authentic Mexican dance with like a glass of water on my head and like this beautiful music. And I think they just looked at me like I was an alien. So it definitely took me a few years to fit in. But let's fast forward. So now I'm 13. I'm in middle school. Like things are good. I found my friend group. I'm very involved in cheerleading and soccer and track. Um, So kind of just this like classic story of me and my three friends at a friend's house, you know, went into the dad's liquor cabinet there and I remember sitting in a circle, um, you know, passing around a bottle of aftershock. Do you remember that stuff? Did I have like <laughs> fake ice cream? It was like sugar crystals yes. or something in it? Yes, crystals like at the bottom. Didn't yeah, people and used to like break the bottle open and try to decipher yes. what's glass and what's like these crystals? Right. I don't know what it was, but it tasted Super like big red gum. Yeah. And it was gross, but we passed that <laughs> bottle around. I remember just getting very drunk. I mean, I was young. I was 13. And... I remember just like crying and like someone punched me. Like it was just a wild night. And I remember like ending up in the back of a car of like people that were much older than us. And, you know, it's funny. I actually, I've kept a diary from the age of third grade to the day I left for college. And I went back and read that entry around that age to try to figure out like, why, why was I drinking at 13? And it was interesting because in my diary, I said, it was a rite of passage. It is something I need to do because I'm a teenager. And, you know, it's interesting to me, is that something I came up with on my own or was was that idea sold to me? I'm not sure looking back retrospectively, but anyway, so honestly in high school, drinking was really innocent. I mean, this town that I lived in was so cute. It was like varsity blues, right? So the town revolved around the football game on Friday night and I was a cheerleader and, you know, we had, we had field parties, everything was pretty innocent. You know, we were drinking on the weekend, but it never got in the way of sports or school. So I graduate um, high school. I end up getting a athletic scholarship to run um, division one cross country at a private school in middle Georgia. And this is kind of where the shift in alcohol happened. So alcohol went from being fun to me using it to numb in college. You know, I had a lot of pressure on myself and as much as I hate to admit it, I was very much a perfectionist. So here I am, you know, running division one. I'm in a sorority, I'm majoring in biology. I have so much pressure on myself. And this is where my dad, who was very close to, got really sick. He developed um, early onset Alzheimer's disease and he had to retire from his medical practice. So I'm also at this time get involved with a much older um, boyfriend who I think he was 30 and I was 18. He was very toxic. He had a lot of mental health issues himself. And I think he took those out on me and I wasn't strong enough at that time to stand up for myself. So all of that combined, um, you know, I used alcohol as a crutch in college. And instead of me having fun, I would come home from drinking and I would cry. I would isolate myself. So this is the time in my life when I was 19. I decided, let's try the geographical cure, right? Let's just move away. Change it up a little. (laughs) 
I know you've heard that before. So I was like, if I just move across the country, all of my problems will go away. Mm-hmm. So the summer before my junior year of college, I moved to Colorado and I actually got a job at a summer camp, which was amazing. It was one of the best summers of my life. You know, we were living in the cabins um, with these kids and these kids were looking at us like role models and there wasn't, you know, alcohol even available. So that was a really, you know, happy time in my life. And then I ended up staying out West and going to school in Montana. I went to Bozeman, uh, Montana State University. And, you know, I didn't know anyone in the state of Montana. So again, you know, drinking really was on the back burner. I was really focused on school. I had shifted my relationship with alcohol at this time. Unfortunately, I ran out of money as one does out of state and I had to move back to Georgia. And the second I got back to Georgia, I got involved with that toxic relationship again, which was so stupid. You know, I was 21. You don't make good decisions when you're 21. So I fell back into those same patterns, drinking, you know, to numb and drinking in excess. And I ended up getting in a little bit of legal trouble, nothing serious, nothing on my record, but it scared me enough straight. So I ended up breaking up with that guy moving to Decatur to live on my own. And Decatur is like a really cute, hip suburb of Atlanta. And I had a studio apartment, focused back on school. Now I'm a senior in college. Things are good again. And I end up meeting my now husband. And, you know, we fall in love. I graduate college. And immediately we get married and have a baby. So life comes at you fast, right? So here I am, 24, a new mom. And I definitely had some postpartum anxiety looking back. I don't think I was depressed. I think I was just anxious, which is a common theme in my life. Um, And I remember I breastfed her, so I wasn't drinking and I abstained from alcohol during the pregnancy. But I remember when she was about nine months old, I was rocking her to sleep in the rocking chair. And I looked over on the counter. I could see my Pinot Grigio because mommy wine culture was, you know, Mm -hmm. everything. And um, I remember thinking, I've drinking every night since I don't know how long. And it scared me, you know, I wasn't getting drunk, but I had drinking, you know, one to three glasses a night for weeks. And I remember thinking, I'm 24 years old. If I keep this up, what does that look like for me? And that was another like light bulb moment for me. Um, And the next day I actually applied to nursing school and I knew I needed to keep my mind busy, you know, to, to keep myself, you know, from drinking. So from there, um, I actually got into nursing school the next month, which was really exciting and lucky for me. And, you know, nursing school is very rigorous. It takes a lot of your time. Um, It takes a lot of your energy. So for two years, you know, I really drinking again was on the back burner. I was really focused on school. So fast forward to now I've graduated nursing school and I have a job in a very busy, stressful labor and delivery unit. And I'm working night shift, which was horrible for me because I could not sleep. So when you're, I can I can speak to that. Night shifts are just. Oh, did you basic. do night shifts too? I still do, and it's, oh, it's the absolute awful. worst. <laughs> How did you learn to sleep? I couldn't sleep. I'm back and forth all the time between yeah. days and nights, and it's yeah, it's just kind of a shit show. <laughs> it definitely messes with your serotonin and your you know your brain chemistry. Yeah, I was just reading an article yesterday on like pineal gland health, trying to figure out how to <laughs> make my body not suck. But right. anyway, yeah, that's a whole. It's a fun little burden. Well, you know, it definitely throws you out of that homeostasis, you know, when you're, you know, you're supposed to be awake with the sun. And Mm -hmm. and anyway, so, so now I, you know, as as a nurse, you work a lot of times your shifts in a row. So I would have, you know, multiple days off in a row and to kind of deal with, you know, the stressful job and, you know, being a mom, again, just using my wine to kind of calm down on those days off. And what happened then I think was a combination of things, but I started to have extreme panic attacks. 
which I had never had before. And these are the type of panic attacks that send people to the ER, right? Wow. So like your hands go numb, your throat's closing, impending doom is what you feel. Terrible. And I don't wish it on anyone. And I remember I went to my primary care doctor and I was like, what is happening to me? Because they would happen when I was driving. They were very scary. And, you know, never once did she ask me about my relationship with alcohol, which was interesting to me. Hmm. Um, looking back, you know, if she had, would that have changed the outcome? I'm not sure. But anyway, so she referred me to a psychiatrist who tried to put me on, you know, SSRIs, different antidepressants or whatever, which was the appropriate treatment. But I was stubborn and I just refused and I just gutted through it, just gutted through that anxiety for years. So eventually I learned, you know, I need to get back into running. I had lost my passion for it. You know, when I had uh, done college sports, I think I just got burnt out on it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I start um, training for an ultra marathon, which was really cool. And, you know, my father at this point is getting much sicker. So I wanted to do something in his honor. And I ended up training for a hundred mile ultra marathon race, which takes a lot of time in training. So drinking was put on the back burner, which actually that combo of, you know, increasing my exercise and training really kind of focused me and, um, you know, prevented me from drinking to excess. Were you still having panic attacks during like with the reduced drinking and the increased physical activity? They subsided at that time. Yeah. So at that time with the running and, you know, not drinking as much, they definitely subsided and um, I honestly, I didn't have any for a long time, but I will say I, I was still drinking during my training. And I remember thinking, well, I don't have a problem with alcohol because ultra marathon runners don't have a problem with alcohol. I mean, the things you say in your mind to justify it. So anyway, um, I ended up completing that race. It was amazing, you know, tears for, you know, being able to do something like that physically and for my father. Um, but anyway, so Fast forwarding a little bit. Now I am 30 years old. We get pregnant again with our second baby, which ends up being our third baby because it's <laughs> twins. And, you know, again, I have those babies and I definitely have postpartum anxiety again. And when they were three months old, my father passed away. And this was devastating to me. I mean, I, I was so close to him. He was a huge role model in my life. And um, I don't know if you've ever watched someone pass away that you love right before your eyes, mm -hmm. but it changes you. It broke me. It broke my spirit. So that kind of combo over the next three years after that was just kind of a progressive downfall. And by that, I mean, no, nothing external happened. You know, it was all in between my ears, but my relationship with alcohol just grew to an, an un unhealthy level. And it was still that mommy wine culture, but Let's fast forward now. It's fall 2018. Me and my husband go on a amazing trip, 10 day trip to Europe. And at this time I'm in my thirties, right? So I'm not having recovering from these night out drinking. Right. And at this time I'm actually drinking more in my home, but uh, I have horrible hangovers, you know, and like you can be the best version of yourself or you can be hungover, but you can't be both. Right. Yeah. So I'm having these terrible, you know, debilitating hangovers, but we go to Europe. And I don't have time to be hungover in Europe. I mean, we're bouncing from city to city. So I learned the very um, unfortunate mistake of just keep drinking. So I drank for 10 days straight. And one of the last nights we were on this beautiful island called Capri off the Amalfi Coast. And I mean, this beautiful glamorous hotel. And I had drinking so much limoncello, which is like the lemon liquor of Sorrento. And I remember just like laying in a curled up like fetal position in the bathroom, just like dry heaving, throwing up and like my whole body started to shake and it scared me 
so much. I'd never had physical symptoms. I mean, even at my worst, I never drank every night or anything. So for me to have these symptoms, I knew what that was. And I'm thousands of miles from home. I thought I was going to die on that bathroom floor, you know? Mm. So I get home from that trip alive. And this is the first time in my life where I realized I can't moderate anymore. Like I need to completely stop this relationship that I have. So I actually, I remember going online and I did the like quintessential search of, do I have a problem with alcohol? And I remember finding this blog about this nurse and she looked like me. She was blonde. And like, I just remember thinking, wow, that girl looks like me. And she's, you know, has a job like me. And I remember reading her whole story that day and just relating to her so, so much. And I ended up stopping actually for about a month, but it was on pure willpower, you know, pure willpower. And I remember leaving work one night and I just pulled over to the liquor store after a stressful day and, you know, got my Pinot Grigio, went home, drank it. It wasn't even like a conscious decision. It was just like I was going through the motions. And then the next, you know, four or five months was just pure hell within my head. You know, it just progressively got worse. And now we're in April 2019. We go on spring break with my children. And, you know, I just, you know, drink the whole trip because we're on spring break. And I remember looking at my kids on the beach and they were playing and they were so happy. They just had that pure joy. And I remember thinking, why, why did I lose that? When did I lose that childlike joy that I had? You know, they're not drinking alcohol and they're so happy. Why can't I have that back? Um, So I get home from that trip. Um, Now it's Easter weekend, April, 2019. I have four days off from work. And, you know, I just start drinking on Friday night, continue into Saturday day drinking, and then Sunday is Easter. And, you know, I had to be present for my kids and go to see family. And I remember just continuing to drink. Now I'm on day three, right? And I just embarrassed myself that day. I embarrassed myself in front of my family, in front of my children. And the next morning I woke up and it's the lowest I've ever felt in my life. I have always been such a happy person and I didn't want to live in that moment. I was so ridden with guilt and shame. And, you know, I've always prided myself on being a strong-minded, disciplined individual with college sports and, you know, being an ultra runner, but I could not fix this. I could not fix this problem. And this is the point in the story where I'm going to try not to cry, but I got up from bed that day and I fell to my knees. I fell to my knees, just automatically fell. And I did not grow up in a very spiritual or religious household, but I've always felt a pull towards God on my own accord. And I fell to my knees and I begged God to save me. I said, God, please, I can't do this on my own anymore. And I asked um, him to save me. And I think it's the coming together of three parts of me in that moment, my spirituality, my physical health, because at this point I was throwing up blood. I mean, I was a ghost, a, a malnourished, like shell of a person. Mm-hmm. And my mental health was shattered. I mean, no one could really see it because I'd isolated myself, but I was a complete mess inside. So the three parts of me, you know, just surrendered. And that was the last day. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a, like a, a crazy moment. Yes. But, but it, an important one to just to, to realize like, this is it. Like I've, I've done what I can and, and it hasn't been enough. So I need something or or something else to help me. That day, um, you know, that day moving forward, you know, it's interesting. I'm looking back at it now and analyzing, but I actually went and, and I, my husband and I were fighting so much, you know, cause my behavior was so erratic. And I went into, to the um, bathroom where he was. And I remember telling him like, 
I am not going to drink anymore. I made a promise to him that I wouldn't. I was like, give me one more chance. And he said, okay. And then I went and I called my two best friends and I said, I think I have a problem with, with my drinking. And they were shocked. You know, even my best friends didn't even know. And they were very supportive and helpful. And then when my daughter got home from school today, because at that point she was nine, the twins were three. So they didn't really know what was going on. Um, she, my daughter got home and I told her, I said, I promise to you, mommy is not going to drink anymore. And to this day, she said that was the best day of her life. Oh my gosh. That's yeah. so sweet. Yeah. It's, yeah, and it's, it's crazy. I think a lot of times like kids don't have the language to, to speak up, but they, like they know. Like kids know something's going on, especially like like your story. That part of your story clicks with me, where so much of it was at home, right? And and my my circle, like even my close circle, didn't see it either, because it was all it all happened here in these four walls. All right, we covered a lot of ground. I want to I want to go back to a couple things. You talked about like during college and and I think even even early in your parenting how drinking kind of provided maybe a sense of control and maybe the, maybe this ties in with some of the eating disorder stuff as well. Were there any times like throughout college or, or maybe even when you were pregnant where you had stints without alcohol that you noticed that control, like that, that need to control, try to, to creep in and in, in, in other ways? That's a great question. I mean, I remember when I would have breaks from alcohol, like when I was pregnant or if I was just taking a break, I felt amazing. I felt so good. And I remember having feelings like I want this feeling forever. And then I would be so disappointed in myself that I would just go back to my old ways. I think, you know, when I was younger at that formative age of 10 is where you learn healthy coping mechanisms. And I learned the wrong ones. Whatever it was, I just learned the wrong ones. I learned to withdraw. I learned to denial. I learned to numb. And I think that's part of the problem that I had. Yeah, healthy coping <laughs> healthy coping is <laughs> is important. And I think a lot of us are learning it at a much later age. It's funny. I was saying that the other day. I was like, at 34, I learned that it's okay to feel my feelings. You know, I was so afraid to feel them. But it's okay. You're supposed to feel them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I... I think it's important too to look back on these these things that we picked up as kids, whether they're healthy or or unhealthy. I hate to label stuff, but yeah, like, yeah, they're un, they were probably unhealthy. Speaking for myself, but but with uh, like some compassion and recognize that like these are things that that helped us survive, and right. that maybe as as they translated into adult life and maybe were adopted as some you know some alcoholic tendencies or or substance abuse behaviors, you know, they, they came from a place where like, as a, as kids, they, they helped us get through stuff. Right. They, you know, they served their purpose and until they didn't. So just for anyone listening, it's, I think it's important just to, to recognize like it, it, it is what it is and it, it doesn't do us any good to, to judge our younger selves, but to look back with, with compassion. I think that's important. Yeah, that's true. You know, and you shared about your, your dad passing and I'm just, I'm so sorry to hear about that. And, um, that sounds like it was just like an incredibly tough time. And I was just wondering, you know, I, I've got to believe that that was, that there were some really complex emotions happening because your twins were, what you said, your twins were about four months, three months old. Yeah. They were babies. Yeah. And to, I don't know, to try to have that, that joy of, you know, two new bundles, yeah. which is also like a tremendous amount of work. 
I, I believe. I, it never, is. You I've can never, come back I've never, anytime. <laughs> I've never had twins, but I know what one does. But to try to like have the joy of, of two new two new kids and then the stress of two new kids and then the right. passing of your father, I imagine that that's just got to be put you in a an insane not not to say that you're insane, but like in a in a crazy headspace. For sure. I definitely think that was the catalyst for like the fast progression of my alcohol use disorder. You know, um, I think that's, you know, why, you know, because I was pretty young when I stopped drinking. I was 34. Granted, mm. I started early at 13, but um, but yeah, I definitely think that paid a lot of tribute to. Yeah, I think I was what was I, 35? I I was maybe just a, a year or two older when my when my brother passed and, and, uh, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the same, but similar in the way that someone who I'm very close to and, and to witness it. And it's terrible. Yeah. It just, it, it poured gas on the fire for me on a, on a problem that already existed. Right. It was, it was just, it was gas and the same thing. Like I didn't, I didn't know how to deal with it. And it just like, you kind of have to come to terms with your own mortality when you watch something like that. And that is, you know, scary in itself as well. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's dig into the, the recovery part, like yeah. the, the cool stuff. So, um, you talked to your husband mm-hmm. and he, um, you know, he said, you asked, you said you asked for another shot. Like, were you guys at a point where there was like the relationship was at, at stake? Yes, I definitely would say that. I mean, my behavior was so erratic that last year, you know, I don't blame him. I mean, I was, you know, I was not a good person, you know, because of my issues, I would, you know, pick fights with him and, you know, just wasn't being present. And, you know, I have had a lot of guilt and shame surrounding that, you know, you know, the years to come, but, but yeah, so I made, you know, those promises to him, to my best friends. I I also called my sister that day, who's a counselor. And she made me, she was like, Megan, I want you to promise me right now when you hang up to call and make an appointment with a therapist, you need to talk to someone with an unbiased opinion about everything. You always hold everything inside and you try to be perfect. And, you know, looking back now, I mean, perfectionism should never have been the goal. I mean, it's boring to be perfect. And, you know, I will say like, I love my father so much, but he definitely never let us see his failures. And I think maybe that's why I was the way I was. And, And part of me, you know, even coming on this podcast and sharing my story publicly is so that my kids do see my failures. I want them to see that. Yeah, I'm, I did fail, but I made a comeback. And you can too. And it's okay to have these setbacks because they slingshot you forward. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And that's, you know, like, as you said that, like, gosh, I've never, I've never thought of it that way, but the way that we model our lives to our kids is so important. And, and to like, to give them, to give them room to fail so that, yeah, yeah, same thing. um, I was just talking about this in a meeting the other week. Uh, We were talking about truth and, and somebody, somebody said in the meeting, like, oh, I think that it's, uh, that people are wired to be truthful. And I, and I said, that's just, I said, that concept is so bizarre to me because like as a child, I had, there was no room, like failure or underachievement. There, there was no room for that in, in my right. life. If I, if I wasn't meeting the mark, like I was, I was met with such harsh criticism and, and not a lot of empathy that, that again, that's made it so. I would lie or, or do whatever I had to do to, it, it, it wasn't safe, like underachieving right. or, or mistakes weren't safe, but right. 
So did you, did you make the phone call and get a, a therapist or counselor? Yeah. Yes, Chris. So I, um, do things in excess <laughs> and I took recovery in excess. I did everything possible. If it had to do something to do with recovery, I was doing it. So I started going to therapy. I went to AA. I got a sponsor. I read every quit lit book that is on the shelf. Mm -hmm. I joined Cafe RE, which is one of my favorite resources in recovery. I listened to every sober podcast. I mean, you name it, I did it and I put the work in. And honestly, the first month was hard, not because I, you know, even at my worst, I was not physically addicted to alcohol. I was not drinking every night because of my job. I mean, I took my job very seriously. So um, I was not drinking every night, but anyway, that first month is just all about like milestones, right? Mm -hmm. So get to the two week, get to the three week, get to one month. And it felt so good. And, um, you know, finally, I actually did not tell anyone um, with the exception of the promises I made that day. I didn't tell anyone about what was going on at all. No one else in my family besides my sister, none of my other friends, no one at work. And at six months, I decided to come out sober on my Instagram which was very interesting to me. And in some ways it was great because I got so much support from strangers. Mm -hmm. I had so many messages from people that were like, well, you know, I have this problem too. How can you help me? And that was great. But I think some people didn't know how to take it either because they didn't know that side of me. They had no idea I had any issue because I had isolated myself and there, there was no external consequences to show. Yeah. So they, I think it got confusing to some people, but honestly, I did this for me and I did this for the people that struggle with it because, you know, in those moments where I was struggling to see the parallels in someone else's story, like that's priceless. And I think when you have an issue with, with alcohol, you feel so alone, you feel so disconnected and to yeah. find those connections. I mean, that's everything. You're right. Those, those parallels is if you're able to hear your story in someone else's and, and to see that they've had you know some amount of measurable success, it's, it, it changes us. And I mean, that's what, that's what we're doing here. Right. How terrifying was that at six months? How terrifying was that to put that on Instagram? Oh my God. It was so scary. I remember, I think I even talked to you about it. I remember asking your opinion about what I should do. And you were like, you told me to go for it. You were like, you can do this. This will help so many people. And it felt so freeing because I had held on to these issues internally for so long and to finally just like let it go. It was just like such a freeing moment in my life to not hold on to this anymore. And it was actually, you know, I've done some pretty cool stuff in my life, you know, but being, you know, kind of beating this alcohol use disorder is the thing I am most proud of in my life. Yeah, there's, I think I was like 400 days before I ever did anything public and I was still, still terrified. <laughs> I remember calling a friend and he goes, the tiger, there is no saber tooth tiger behind you. Like no one is chasing you. You're going to be okay. Right. And the thing with, with AA is, um, I know a lot of people have success with that. I personally do not identify as an alcoholic. In the words of Holly Whitaker, addiction is an experience, not an identity. And I very much relate to that. It was very helpful in the beginning. However, I really struggled with the first step, which is I am powerless. And maybe we can psychoanalyze this a little bit. But for me, I am not powerless over it. I am around alcohol all the time you know, even now three years and, you know, because my friends still drink and my husband drinks and that's okay. And I feel very powerful in, in that moment. So for me, I don't want to give any power back to that alcohol. I can be around it and a hundred percent immediately say no, 
immediately say no. So that I really struggled with that first step. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we live in a good time where there are, there are so many people talking about their recovery and their sobriety. And there's, there, just the amount of resources from three years ago, four years ago, like the amount of resources there are today, it's, and we just keep finding more and more and there's more people coming out with whether it's programs or, or adaptations or, or their versions. And yeah, you know, Annie Grace's work really helped me a lot. I'm sure you're familiar with her and this yeah. naked mind and her book and reading that book, you know, coming from like such a psychosocial, like biological research background, it just, everything she said clicked with me so much, just having that science background myself and the way that she analyzed it and how, you know, once you, the willpower only lasts so long, but if you can get that shift, you know, I think Paul talks about the boiling point. And that day that I fell to my knees, that was my boiling point. And I had that subconscious shift around alcohol and that, um, you know, is everything. That's the reason why I don't drink today. Yeah. And I think, I think it's important. And I just want to encourage listeners. Like if you, you know, like I'm a 12 step guy because it, because it works for me. Right. But if you, if you try it and and if you can't find a group or, or if you find problem with the program, like try something else and don't be afraid to, to go back and try different things, different times. But there's, I mean, just to, to keep trying because there's, there's so much stuff out there. And I think there's a lot of importance in finding whether it's the author or the program or, or the thing that speaks to you, because, you know, you and I can say the same thing and depending on who's listening, you know, they're going to receive it from They'll receive it differently. So, hundred percent. If it's working for you, stick with it. Whatever that is, yeah, hundred percent. And if it does, and if like one particular thing doesn't, like, don't be afraid to like just keep trying because there's so there's so much stuff out there. Yeah, I'm very thankful for that. So, in that first thirty, sixty, ninety, how did you know? You mentioned that you that you went kind of gangbusters and just <laughs> did basically everything. How did how did your day to day look? What what sort of things were you feeling and experiencing, you know, with your family, with this, you know, this incredible shift? Yeah. You know, I, I look back and I was just so much more present in my children's lives. And that to me is so priceless because you only have so much time with your kids when they're little. And, you know, those last few years I was there, I was physically there, but mentally I was in a different headspace. And, you know, I was just able to, you know, enjoy and have fun with my kids again. And, you know, I was able to leave the house again. And I mean, I really, those first, that first year was just pure joy. I mean, it was just so, I finally found that joy that I had as a kid. It came back, it came back. And that was great. I love that. You know, and you, you said that about that, what was it? Your spring break, like the spring break you went on right before you yeah. quit and like recognizing that, like my kids have this, like, why can't, where did, where did this go for me? Right. And I think that's so important is to be able to find a way to to have fun and, and connect. I think that's a lot of that is connection with yourself and, and connecting Absolutely. with the people around you rather than numbing out. And there can, I mean, there exactly. can be some, some discomfort in that originally or yeah, initially. I mean, you make up, you bring up such a good point. I think I had lost myself. i had lost myself along the way. And, you know, that first year after, you know, quitting alcohol, I found myself again. And with that, becomes there's so much confidence that comes within that you know when you're constantly living in this guilt and shame you know hamster wheel your confidence is shit you know so to be able to like rebuild myself i'm such a stronger person now and i'm so thankful for that that's awesome 
let's talk uh, practically. Like in that first year, did you find yourself any in any situations where where you were triggered or or you wanted to drink, where you're going through a tough time, and like what what did that look like for you, and and what sort of things did you do to get through those? Yeah, great question. So I really did not have any cravings at all. I mean, after that first, you know, the day I fell to my knees, as I like to say, I really didn't have cravings. However, I will say I had moments where I wanted to escape. Definitely mm-hmm. moments that were really hard. And, you know, I found different ways to escape. I would go for a walk. I would go for a hike. I would put on my earbuds and listen to the podcast. Um, I definitely, there was a lot of growth in that first year. And I think I honestly learned healthy coping skills at 34. <laughs> yeah. Well, better late than never, right? Yeah. And, you know, seeing the therapist really helped that first year. I don't see one anymore. Um, but I think that first year, just having someone look at it and like do a deep dive and, you know, he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, Megan, I just want you to know that you're not broken. And when he said that to me, I just started crying because I just felt so broken. You know, I put so much pressure on myself to be this whatever. And I just kept failing and failing and failing. And I am nowhere near perfect now. And that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. Odette just sent me a quote, the other, and I'm going to absolutely butcher it, but she, she just sent it to me the other day. She heard it in like a Peloton class or some damn thing, but it's like, just cause you, like, just because you fall, you're, that doesn't mean that you're broken. And that's, and that's exactly it. And I love I, that. I'm glad that, I'm glad that they said that to you. Cause it's, we're not, we're sometimes we feel lost. Sometimes we feel separated, but, but we're, I think we're always worth it. Like no matter where we are in the journey, it's, it's worth it. And it, it's not too late. Right. Exactly. All right. So. What does, let's just talk about like, what, what does your recovery look like today? What, like what sort of tools or, or, or habits have you, have you hung on to or, or how have things shifted as you're approaching three years? Yeah. So, you know, that first year, you know, I threw myself into recovery, you know, like I was you know, trying to ace the test. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also actually enrolled in graduate school um, that year because I've always wanted to be a nurse practitioner. It's always been a dream of mine. So I was busy with graduate school. Um, but in terms of my recovery, the second year was just kind of cruising. You know, I was just in cruise control. And then this third year, it's really just been great. I mean, I still listen to RE podcasts. It's one of my favorite podcasts. But, um, you know, it's interesting for me because my life's a little bit different because I still am around alcohol all the time, but I'm just so detached from it now that I'm, it's, I'm able to be around it and say no. You know, I think I would love to have more friends that don't drink. That would be, um, you know, great for me, but um, it's okay that I don't. And I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. You know, there are times where I'm out with my friends and everyone's drinking and it gets to a certain point where it's not fun for me anymore because they're, you know, to a certain level and that's totally fine. I have no problem with that, but I just have to excuse myself in those situations and just say, I'm going to go to bed or, um, you know, I'm going to leave or whatever. And everyone is very understanding of that. Um, in terms of like other resources, um, I always make sure I have my favorite drink with me, which is like a prebiotic soda. I love like <laughs> poppy soda or like Olipop. Always have that in hand. Um, so, yeah. You know, you bring up such a good point is that, you know, you mentioned that, that you're around alcohol. It's just kind of part of your social life. And, and I think a lot of us, uh, a fear is that, that, that our social life is going to disappear or, or that it has to disappear. And, 
I think there's something to be said about guarding our sobriety and, and like treading lightly into those situations as early on. But, um, you know, I did an interview a couple months ago or a month ago, two months ago. And Haley, she's was food and beverage. And she talked about how she's like, this is my life. Right. And like, even if it's not your career, like you still, you know, these are still your friends. These are still your peers and you, and you want to be around them. What's interesting for me is that I've realized like an eye-opening moment for me is that I've realized choosing to not drink in a, a society that puts alcohol on such a pedestal is actually an act of rebellion. And that really yeah. identifies with me. That little rebel that's inside of me loves that. And, you know, choosing to li- live an alcohol-free life is actually my favorite thing about myself. And I'm very proud of that. So for me, when I'm around people that are drinking, I don't feel uncool. I don't feel disconnected. I feel proud that I don't actually need that substance to talk or socialize or fit in or whatever. And not that, that if they do need that, that that's a problem. But for me, I just don't need it anymore. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's an amazing perspective, Megan. And then, you know, like you said that, you know, like kind of having those personal boundaries and knowing like, all right, if there might be a time in the night when, all right, this is, this is, this is no longer where I need to be. And it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be this grand show. It doesn't have to be this like, you guys are too drunk and I got to get the hell out of here. Like, you can say, okay, this is this is no longer where, where I want to be and, and I love you guys and I'll see you later. Exactly. It yeah. doesn't have, I don't know. I, like I always thought it had to be this, sound the alarms. You guys are at a place where I used to go and I can't be. The, no, you just say, <laughs> all right, I love you and I'll see you right. later. Have a good right. night. Be safe. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I love, I lo- you know, I, I just, I love that. I love that you, you know, I can tell that you just still have uh, like a love for life and a love for the people in your life. And yeah, I think giving up alcohol really put my body back in that homeostasis. I mean, I'm just a naturally a happy person and, you know, alcohol over time just broke my spirit. It broke who I was. It changes you. Um, and I'm just so glad I had that, that moment, that moment where I fell to my knees and had the clarity and then, you know, utilize the resources after that to keep, you know, my recovery going to this day. Megan, this hour is absolutely soared by, but we are at the ever important rapid fire round. Okay. Um, you know, the show, you know, the deal in 30 to 60 seconds. Are you ready to answer these questions? Absolutely. Bring it on. All right. Number one, what was your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking? That's a great question. I think that I thought I would be very bored. You know, I think that back then I thought, you know, drinking alcohol made me interesting and different. But honestly, I was just on a hamster wheel of like, there's like the same thing over and over. You know what I mean? Just that repetitive, you know, activity and alcohol just kind of made everything law, you know, and now I feel like, I feel like when I was drinking, everything was in black and white and now my life is in vibrant color. So I don't know who sold me the idea that alcohol made me funnier or more interesting, but I think now it's better. Life is much better. Yeah. Well, let's rapid fire question. Number two, uh, we'll kind of expand on that. Like what is a positive that you didn't, that you didn't expect, um, in a life without alcohol? That's a great question. I think at the time I thought, you know, alcohol was helping my anxiety. And now looking back, I don't have anxiety anymore. I mean, granted, I have a little bit here and there, like I had anxiety about doing this interview, but it's not debilitating anymore. And I think, you know, that's so 
so amazing that I was able to realize it, that alcohol never helped my anxiety. It just exacerbated it. Yeah. Uh, number four, what is your, or this is number three, my number's wrong. Uh, what is your plan in sobriety moving forward? Another great question. So, you know, now I am um, a nurse practitioner and I'm a provider and I definitely, I work in primary care. So I have the vantage point now to help other people that come in and have issues. So um, if I have a patient that comes in that has hypertension, insomnia, anxiety, my first question off the bat is, well, how much are you drinking? And I just want to make sure that they ab they're able to make that connection that alcohol can cause those physical conditions. Um, and you can see kind of a light bulb moment go off in their heads when I mentioned that they're actually correlated. That's really cool. And to be able to come with, to come with experience and probably a compassion that, that others uh, might, might not be able to tap into so easily. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite resource in recovery? Definitely Cafe RE. Cafe RE was, you know, huge for me in the beginning. It's, you know, an online group. It, there was just so much love and support there. That's where I met you, Chris. And I honestly, I'm so thankful for that, that group. And um, y'all do amazing work with your meetups and everything and, and the podcast. And then, you know, Annie Grace's work, it was very um, important to me in my recovery and just kind of having that science and research behind alcohol use disorder and letting her, you know, she explains it from a point of, you know, alcohol is problematic to anyone, right? Anyone that drinks it can have an issue with alcohol, not just certain people. And uh, that just kind of justified everything for me. What parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are either early in their recovery or thinking about getting sober? So one bad chapter doesn't mean your story is over. You can make a comeback a hundred percent. And I support you. Cafe RE supports you. My only advice would be if you're thinking about making that decision, just go ahead and make it because my only regret is that I didn't do it sooner. I love that. That's so good. And this is last, but certainly not least, you might need to ditch the booze if. What is your favorite? You might need to ditch the booze if line. Okay. So if you wake up in the morning, go to your refrigerator, pour out all of your Pinot Grigio down the sink, and then four hours later, go to the grocery store and buy all of the same wine that you just poured <laughs> down the sink, um, you might want to quit drinking. <laughs> yeah. That's, so just a weird recycling trick. Uh, Megan, I just want to thank you for coming on the, coming on the show. I think you've, I think you've just done a great job. Um, I appreciate you sharing just you know, what it can look like, you know, we can have families and be busy and just have these crazy lives. And still there's, you know, I, I love your, your advice that you gave, like one bad chapter doesn't, doesn't make the whole story and we can come out of it and, you know, look at you like completing grad school and the work that you're doing now. It's, I think it's amazing. So thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. This is so much fun. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you, sister. Recovery Elevator. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Megan, for coming on the show. It's the vulnerability of our guest that allows us to keep doing this. Each person who comes on brings something unique that has the capacity to reach one of our listeners. Thank you for trusting us with your stories. A couple weeks ago, I had the chance to get together with some of my recovery family. A group of us spent four days hanging out with really no agenda to speak of. Before the trip, I had met about half the folks in person and the other half I only knew through our online community. As an aside, the joke wasn't lost on us that we told our friends and family we were gonna go spend the long weekend with our internet friends. 
On the first night, we gathered in the living room and held an impromptu AA meeting. One of the group was celebrating a milestone, and we wanted to honor her. It was a beautiful moment when we passed around the chip, and she was able to start the shares by telling us how she got there. We took turns after her, sharing on the topic, and opening up about how it related to our lives and our recovery. It was simple, but set the stage for the rest of our time together. The next few days were a mix of laughter, tears, and reflection, and of course, tons of food and sparkling water. Note to self, buy more chocolate next time. I'm always humbled when I get the opportunity to spend time with people in recovery. The way that they listen, not just waiting for their turn to speak, but really listen to what you have to say. The way that you can open up about your experiences without fear of being shamed for how you behaved. The way we can trust each other as we walk our path to healing and the support that is offered as you're making changes in your life. You don't just find that anywhere. That trip filled my heart. It was hard to leave those folks, but it's helped me moving forward. I'm reinvigorated and ready to keep doing my work at home with a new resolve. I've got a new level of excitement as I keep working on the podcast and as I get ready for our next RE event in Bozeman. I've been reminded by hearing other people's stories of just how much our lives can change by shedding the things that no longer serve us and stepping ahead with a love for this new life. Thank you, thank you, thank you to that crew that went with us. I love you and continue to be blessed by your friendship. Listeners, keep leaning into that discomfort. Keep reaching out for support. Keep sharing your experiences. There's no telling where this road might take you. Recovery Elevator, you're the only one that can do this, but you don't have to do it alone. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, the reality of who you are emerges by itself.